All right. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts 19. You know, when dealing with a passage that talks about speaking in tongues, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. It's easy to forget the meaning of the passage that we're reading about. It's easy to miss larger themes that might be in the book. We live in a city where the Assembly of God denomination is headquartered here. The city also has very deep conservative Baptist roots. But it's not my job to be beholden to a denominational slant or even to my own experiences or the experiences of the majority of it might be in here but hopefully to allow the Word of God to speak for itself, to breathe, without our agendas dictating to us. And that's not always easy. I have shared this with you before, and it probably bears sharing again, that I have communicated with what I consider to be the most preeminent Pentecostal scholar of our day, had just very honest questions, conversations, and it's been such a rich blessing. Some of my deepest friends are people who think differently than I do on these issues. I don't weigh these things in terms of you can be my friend or not. It doesn't reach that level. It's just an issue that we need to talk about because the passage deals with it. So I don't want us to, to front load these things with such a heaviness that you know, we have to break off fellowship with people who don't agree with us. I don't think that for a minute. But I'm not here to appeal to a a particular person or group, but just to try to cut it straight and get it right. And I'm not claiming I got it all right. I'm just doing the best I can. Hopefully, to the degree that I do that, then it's your job to comply with Scripture. To the degree that I get it wrong, may God give you the wisdom to know that, and uh, may I recognize my error. That's the best I can do. Last week, we looked at a situation with... Apollos, and our text in in Acts 18 told us that this man had a conversation with Aquila and Priscilla, and they told him that uh, he needed to uh, learn some things and to teach more accurately. And we surmise, because of the descriptors used in that passage about him, that Apollos was a Christian, but just needed to be corrected or have some other things uh, substantiated uh, in, his, uh, in his teaching. It was said that he only knew of the baptism of John. And we kind of explained what that meant last week. Uh, and the same phrase is used here in our passage in Acts 19. And it's possible that Luke includes these stories back to back at the beginning of chapter 19, at the end of chapter 18, uh, to let us know that Christianity was superior to any movement like this uh, that was rooted on the Old Testament but looking to the New. And so it brings us to our passage here in Acts 19, 1 through 7. Let's all stand as we take a look at this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, 
into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. The facts that are presented here may seem rather innocuous. Apollos is in Corinth. Paul is in Ephesus. Ephesus was well known for its idol worship and being a principal uh, trading center in Asia, had harbors and and network of roads reaching into the interior that Paul certainly wanted to access as he saw it as a strategic way to reach Asia evangelistically. But as he's operating here, he meets up with 12 people who were called disciples. Now, how we define disciples here is critical to our understanding and, uh, of this passage and where we head, what direction we go. Some take a blanket approach and say disciples always means Christians, disciples of Jesus. But the, the word itself simply means a, a pupil, a learner, a follower. So one could be a disciple of Plato. One could be a, a disciple of Confucius. And one could be a disciple of Jesus. It's interesting that the author of Acts, Luke, when he wrote his gospel, wrote in Luke 5.33 and 7, 1 and 8, he used the term disciple to refer to learners of John the Baptist, disciples of John the Baptist. And the context of Acts 19 seems to make clear that these 12 were indeed disciples of John the Baptist. Now, we don't know, given just the information we have in verse 1, whether they were Christians or not. We're going to need more information for that. Verse 2, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that's a very queer response from a group of people who are following John the Baptist because John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize his followers with the Spirit and with fire. He said that in Luke 3.16. And Jesus alluded to this in Acts 1. And the Old Testament promised that the Holy Spirit would come upon people later. For instance, in Isaiah 44, 3, it says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the high ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In Ezekiel 36, it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. 
and calls you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In Joel 2, it says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And you might remember Peter giving that prophecy, that promise in Acts 2 during Pentecost. So John the Baptist promised the Holy Spirit. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament prophet said there's going to come the Holy Spirit. So how could these who call themselves disciples of John not even know that there's a Holy Spirit? I think that if we were to just step back for a second, we realize that there are people in any religious setting that don't always understand what is held within their particular faith system, right? I mean, for instance, you could say there are Catholics who don't understand transubstantiation view of communion or the doctrine of purgatory, or they maybe can't explain the apostolic succession. You could call them maybe uninformed Catholics, but they're still Catholic, right? It's the same for evangelical Christians who may not understand certain doctrines that might even be very important, can't explain it, but might not even be aware, but they still would call themselves Christians. And the same would be true of these followers of John. So people differ in their level of understanding in their religion. So we could say that these were at least uninformed disciples of John, ignorant of the gospel and the benefits that the gospel entailed. Now, the scriptures make it very clear, by the way, that when one becomes a believer, they will have the Holy Spirit. Uh, we read this in John 3. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In Ephesians 1, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then in Romans 8, 9, just in case you didn't get the point, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Could it be any clearer? It is normative. It is expected that the Holy Spirit is given to people at salvation. However, there are three instances in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit was given to three different people groups. They had come to Christ, and then later they were baptized in the Spirit, either with a laying on of hands or some other means, but in every one of those instances, they had apostles with them. For instance, in Acts 2, the Jews received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In Acts 10, the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. 
In Acts 8, the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. These are significant transitions, important markers for people who previously had felt left out. There were racial and national and religious divisions between Jew, Gentile, and Samaritans who were kind of considered the half-breeds. To overlook that is to miss one of the biggest points of the gospel, which is to bring people together. If you look at our nation right now, and you look at how we are so divided, you look at the white supremacy and all that crap going on, and the racism and everything associated with it, the thing that breaks those barriers is the gospel. We realize that we are coming together as one people regardless of race, nationality, previous religion. We acknowledge that we're all made in the image of God. And so what's taking place is God putting his stamp of approval on these people. They know for certain that the Holy Spirit has entered their lives by the presence of the apostles and these signs to accompany them. And now dramatically, they have manifested the Spirit of God in their life. So the question that arises since the Holy Spirit is missing with these 12 disciples of John, is it because they are not Christians in the first place? Or is it because there is some group nationality shared where they need the subsequent baptism of the Spirit? They've already been converted, but they need God to kind of put that stamp of approval on them. Now, Pentecostal theologians would say that these 12 were Christians and simply missing the baptism of the Spirit. And I see why they would say that. Others would say that they were not Christians and needed salvation, and then the Spirit would come and enter their lives. We have already recognized three instances where these groups, the Jews the Gentiles and the Samaritans received this baptism of the Holy Spirit being placed within the body of Christ. You are a part of us, one body. That was important. Now, the text doesn't give us any indication that that is what is taking place here in Acts 19. In fact, we don't even know the nationality. Nothing is given here to us regarding what the race or nationality of these people were. So my dear Pentecostal brothers and sisters would say we are left with believing that the baptism of the Spirit is to be a normative experience after salvation for everyone with tongues being the special manifestation. Again, let me insert. My, some of my dearest friends in the world are people who think differently than I do on this issue, and I don't care as far as our relationship is concerned. So again, let's, let's not put further weight upon it in those things. But I just have to present you a position. You can take it or leave it, all right? But anyway, getting back to saying that this is normative 
to have a subsequent experience of baptism with the Spirit. The problem with that is that this is the last time that tongues is even talked about in the book of Acts. We still have a third of the book to go. No more instances. No more examples. Not one injunction in any of the teaching books, epistles of the New Testament informing us that we're to seek this and go for this. We have read about church activity in 50 cities throughout the book of Acts. And we have three instances where we find baptism of the Spirit and tongues. Four if you include Acts 19. That hardly seems normative for me when it's mentioned four out of 50 cities. I'm not saying tongues has ceased. I don't believe that. Or that tongues could not be a sign of the Holy Spirit, because I think it could be. But it's, to me, a far stretch, and I think beyond the examples of Acts, to say that it's the only sign or even the preeminent sign. So, I'm prone to think that Acts 19, these 12 were not believers. However, that approach is not without problems, Because right? Paul asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It would appear that they believed the gospel and now need the Holy Spirit. So they're Christians. However, I think there's another way to look at that. Paul knows that there's no such thing as a believer without the Holy Spirit. Could he be redirecting them to a full-fledged faith in Christ beyond John the Baptist so that they could receive the Spirit? He could be saying, you guys believed John. Give you credit for that. But you don't have the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you about Jesus and then you get the Holy Spirit. And he seems to clarify that in these following verses. He said, into what were you baptized? Because remember, Christian baptism is related to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The baptism of John was looking ahead to that. And he said, into what were you baptized? I said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. John led you to look to Jesus, but have you really come to grips with all that that entails? You were baptized as one of John's followers. Now I'm inviting you to be baptized as a follower of Christ. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So they submitted to water baptism, Christian baptism, for the first time in the name of Jesus, which I think gives a strong indication that this is the first time they understood and affirmed the gospel. Now notice, by the way, in Acts 18, Apollos was not asked to be baptized giving evidence that he was, in fact, a believer. Here, Paul tells him to believe in Jesus in verse 4, 
And in verse 5, they are baptized. It was then Paul who affirmed the giving of the Holy Spirit to them. And they knew that by tongues and prophesying. Now, those manifestations of the Spirit may vary. In previous messages where I've talked about the filling of the Spirit or being in the Spirit, there are a multitude of manifestations associated with it. Tongues is some of it, but certainly not the predominant. Uh, There's boldness. There's ability to adjust to being persecuted and various other ways that the Holy Spirit is used with people. So they vary these manifestations. The Spirit of God involves themselves in the lives of believers. We can't say that X will happen when you have the Spirit, okay? What we can say is that there's fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 says that. There should be obedience to Jesus, the Word of God. Those you can bank on. But outside of that, these other kinds of manifestations, miracles kind of thing, those can vary. Again, I'm not saying they're not present. I'm not saying they have ceased. I'm just saying that you can't say any one of those is the one mark of the Spirit being involved in somebody's life. Now, I know that these kinds of messages leave many questions in people's minds. And and I've covered filling of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, in in much greater detail in other messages. So I I want to direct you to some of those messages that you can find online if you're interested. I would encourage you to listen to the messages on Acts 2, verses 4 through 13, or Acts 8, verses 14 through 17, or Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. And hopefully they would answer some of those questions. What I'd like to do to finish our, our day here is consider some things that I think Pentecostals and non-Pentecostals, I think, could think about. And let me first say that I don't want to limit myself by anything that's said. I don't want any of us to limit what the Spirit of God wants to do in our lives. But we recognize that there's possible extremes and issues on both sides of this. Secondly, I would say that what we want to seek is unity. I've already made it plain, I enjoy unity with brothers and sisters who believe differently than I do, who disagree with me, that's fine. And I I want you to enjoy great fellowship with other friends who think differently. The overarching theme of Acts 18 and Acts 19 is the centrality of Christ, the unity that Christ brings, the gospel, right? Jesus Christ is to be our focus. Jesus Christ is the one that gets our attention. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to put focus on Christ. So when division because of social pressure happens over matters related to the Spirit, it would seem to me that's not a work of the Spirit, right? That's the job of the Spirit to bring unity. So let me address these areas that I think First, I'll address Pentecostals, then I'll talk about non-Pentecostals, all right? Areas Pentecostals I wish would avoid, all right? First, loose language. What do I mean by that? Well, banding about phrases like 
this is spirit-filled worship, or this is the manifest presence of God. It's going to look like this. Does that mean I have to oblige Pentecostal theology? Otherwise, I can't have the Holy Spirit involved? Does that mean I have to have my hands raised, speak in tongues? Have to have a certain kind of music, sing a certain way, approach this a certain way to be spirit-filled, have certain machinations? And are you saying that people who don't oblige that? Uh, let me ask you this. Do you think Presbyterians or Anglicans who are not charismatic in the classical sense can be spirit-filled in their worship? Because if you don't, I don't buy that. I think that's like a theological prejudice. You can't make that kind of statement. You're telling me that people in China that are being persecuted, they can't hardly even sing without being thrown in prison and they're quietly coming before the Lord in their homes, that that's not spirit-filled? Because they're not, you know, doing whatever you think they ought to do. I don't buy that. I think true spirit-induced worship would be that which is biblically sound, Christ-centered. It induces the kind of worship where we respond to God with open and contrite hearts. And it seems to me that would include non-Pentecostals and Pentecostals. So it would be better to use more accurate language to say this. You know what? I can worship better when the music is like this. There's nothing wrong with that statement. Or you could even say, I worship better in charismatic churches. Nothing wrong with that statement. You're not saying that's necessarily better worship or spirit-filled worship. You're just saying you worship better there. And that's not condemning of other kinds of worship, just saying what you like. And by the way, there's plenty of worship that's not spirit-filled, right? Right? I mean, there's plenty of worship that is self-centered. Plenty of worship that is not biblical. Plenty of worship that does not uh, encourage obedience and focus on Christ. So, and that cuts across the grain of any denomination. I could relate it this way. I'm trying to think how I could illustrate it. Let's say that you have two different married couples. And one married couple is very affectionate. And they show that affection in public, you know, hands through the hair, kissing on each other, hugging each other, arms around each other all the time. Every time you see them, you know, just slop it all over each other, right? <laughs> and then you have another couple who doesn't do that at all. Are you going to say the couple who doesn't not have PDA that they don't love each other? Could you say that? No, you can't say that. You don't know what they do when they're alone. You don't know how they express it. They just may not have the kind of personality where they feel comfortable doing that in public. All right? You can't make that statement. They just choose to do it privately and in different ways. Couples love each other and express that differently, right? Likewise, we must not take one manifestation of the Spirit and generalize a biblical principle from it as if it's the only application. All right? So if you want my brain to explode, just say to me, well, that's not Spirit-filled worship. Well, that's not Spirit-filled worship. Boom! <laughs> There you go. 
on cue. Why don't you sit in the back row? All right, here's the next thing. Imprecise theology. Now, this is not everybody. And by the way, loose language, that's not every Pentecostal, obviously. Just some. Same with imprecise theology. I've met some of the best theologians are Pentecostals, so I'm not saying they're all imprecise. But some, okay? I would love to hear some answers as to why there's no injunctions about the baptism of the Spirit in the epistles. I'd love to hear why there doesn't seem to be any pattern of manifestation and just these scant instances within the book of Acts. I'd love to hear why the Spirit is, and manifestations are, appear in a variety of ways with tongues being a minority way. Again, I'm not saying it ceased. I'm just saying it doesn't seem to be the premier way. And so I just haven't heard anything yet that, uh, that satisfies my curiosity about that. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I just haven't heard it yet. All right, how about for non-Pentecostals? I think non-Pentecostals could help themselves by addressing the following areas. Quit assuming nefarious motives or forces are always behind charismatic expressions. Drives me nuts. It is negligent, it is negligent to imply that in every instance of some kind of manifestation, it's demonically induced or self-serving. I, I think there are many Christians who kind of grow up with, it, it's, it's like a prejudice of Pentecostals, and it's injurious to the body of Christ and to unity, and in most cases, unwarranted. Next, is we limit God's work based on our own experience. Because you have not experienced tongues or some other miracle, that doesn't mean it can't happen. When we let our experience be the definition of the normal Christian life, that is a, a view that's very limiting, right? And I'm not going to say this is how God works just because he's worked that way through me. And then next is... We need to quit being absolute about shaky, what I call shaky cessationism. The theological arguments that say tongues cannot be for today, in my opinion, lack a robust argumentation of biblical support. It would help if non-Pentecostals backed off speaking so authoritatively on a topic based on scant evidence and focus more on just keeping their own hearts right and whatever God wants them to do and be open for God to move in your church however he wants. In the most perfect demonstration of the Holy Spirit, we see it demonstrated with the only perfect person who's ever lived, and that was Jesus in Luke 3. And we see what happened when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. It says that the heavens were opened and something like a dove landed upon Jesus and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit descended and who got the attention? Who got the attention? 
Jesus. Not the dove. Look at the pretty little dove. We all need doves. No. Not some particular manifestation, but the person of Christ. All our activity, all our programs and ministries are to lift up the person and work of Jesus Christ. To the degree that we are being led by and filled with the Spirit, we will lift up Christ. To the degree that we put attention on ourselves and on how we're better than others, we separate ourselves from others because we have this and you don't, we operate out of the flesh. May the Spirit of God fill all of us. And may Jesus Christ be glorified. Let's pray.